Did you miss me? Because I missed me. Myros, how much did you miss me? Uh, I would say not at all, but that really, I mean, it just makes more work for me when you're not here, so uh, it's a good to have you back. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Think of all the ways I make your life easier. Well, I mean, I probably complicated a bit, too, but, uh, you know. Uh, also joining us, Jack Easton. Hey, Steve. I definitely missed you. I, I think the simmering sexual tension between you and Adam is core uh, ingredient for the the optimism vaccine <laughs> success story so glad we got it reestablished you know we we lose some of the juice for the show when uh bad amiros isn't serving up whole for me so <laughs> uh feels good to be back and yeah i was i was in italy for like 10 days and i mean you know obviously food was great obviously beautiful art everywhere all kinds of just you know big marble statues the guys with beards just sucking and fucking and, you know, the, the one thing they don't talk about in Italy, and I, and I think this is the main thing you need to think about with this country, is uh, the toilet situation, the good and the bad, uh, particularly the good. Uh, I am a full convert to the uh, bidet lifestyle, and I, I would encourage, if you have access to one, because they're all over the fucking place, like every, every hotel in Italy, is, you get a bidet, uh, 10 out of 10 experience, just, you know. These, oh. This is a thing that that everyone is converting over to the bidet, the people with means. But I don't, I don't know. I don't see the appeal. It seems like I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just like too repressed. But uh, I, I, gotta, I gotta tell it. you something. Uh, let, let's let's take a, let's take a scenario. All right. Sure. This is, this is how I'm gonna sell you on the bidet. Let's say that you are walking your dog. You're walking little toast, and uh, he takes a, a, a wet shit. Sure. Sure. Now, Let's say that for some reason you choose to bend over with your bare hand and pick up his wet shit and then just kind of like squeeze it through your fingers, just oozing. Uh, right? This a real relatable scenario you're painting. A Very, yeah, yeah. Picture. I know. I mean, this is this is a, a daily thing. Sometimes multiple yeah, times sure, a day. Sure. So you've picked up the bare turd with your bare hand. You squeezed it through. It's it's squeezing through your fingers, and uh, then you go home. What do you do? Do you wash your hands? Or do you just take a piece of paper towel, wipe it down, and call it a fucking day? What do you do? I mean, I, I suppose I would, in this scenario, I would wash my hands. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. Yeah. It is, it is, uh, it's, it's better. It's better. And it's just an all-around better situation. So if you can, if you can hose down your ass, I, I would say take that. Take that opportunity. Hose down your ass. You're gonna have I a, just a don't know. Experience. I'm not using a hose on my hands. You know, like some gentle waters. It is. It's, it's. It's a lovely experience. Also, uh, not not sure that that you handle as much stuff with your with your ass day to day. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I think Listen. there'd just be a significant onboarding time for me to to really get used to this uh, this yeah. process. I, I I it would be a, a difficult initial leap for me to just be like, all right, time to turn the jets on. That's what I mean, you gotta do. It's Certainly it would make more sense because I knew a guy in college uh, when first came over to the US. Um, I knew, I didn't really know him. I knew him through a friend briefly, but uh, he had a thing where every time he took a shit, uh, he had to take a shower. He just, we didn't like toilet paper. So that was, and honestly, like a bidet surely would have been life changing for this man. So the scenario here is that he's not wiping his ass before he enters the shower? 
Because that to me, yeah, if I'm using not. that shower ever, no. I'm, I'm kind of taking some umbrage. <laughs> yeah, because he's basically turning your shower into yeah. a toilet. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're going to get like fucking planters warts from all the fucking feces in the shower. It's just a bad, bad idea. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I mean, no one bad. said it was a good idea. I don't think anyone presented it like that. But this, this is these are the lives that people quietly, desperately lead around these United States. Unbelievable. Can you imagine that guy goes to Taco Bell and he ends up taking six showers that day? Like, <laughs> what a life. Clean as a whistle. Now, uh, on the positive side, we have the bidet. And you would think that with this revelation, with, with the ubiquity of, of the bidet, uh, I, I would be singing the praises of the Italian bathroom. But you, you would be wrong because there's, there's a yin to every yang, Adam Myros. I think and it's yin. Not ying, 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 yang, ying, yang, 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 yin. All right, <laughs> listen, listen. Uh, Italy is a pay to shit economy. Did you know that? Yeah, I think that's it's pretty common outside the it's, the U.S. It's it's wild. There's there's really there's no there's not a lot of free public bathrooms. You find a public bathroom that's going to be like two or three euros to take a shit. Well, that's not the gets, problem. The problem is piss. You know, I, it's yeah, kind of yeah. rare that I'm just like strolling down the the fucking city center and have to take a big shit, but you know, you have to <laughs> yeah. pee. You gotta pee. You gotta pee. And then, and then what happens is, you know, it's, it's hot. It's July, you know, it's like 90 degrees. And, uh, what ends up happening is, yeah, you, you dehydrate yourself cause you don't want to pay to pee. Now, if you're in a restaurant, this is where it gets very interesting. And luckily I never found myself in a situation where this was a problem. Uh, but when you go into a restaurant in Italy, nine times out of 10, uh, there's no toilet seat and, uh, a lot, most of the toilets there, they've got the little two button system, like the little button for your pee. And then it's like, oh, you, you took a poop. You got to hit the big button to really make it go down. <laughs> and a lot of these places where they would like duct tape off the big button, like just actively discouraging shits. And, uh, I, it just, it just seems like a troubling scenario. Now, again, I didn't run into a situation where this was a problem, but it happens. It's going to happen at some point. And then what Let's do see, you do? I support this. I, I think they need to work on, on ways for free urination. But uh, uh, defecation, that's a different beast. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't come up for me personally. I, I can count on two hands probably the number of times I've, I've really used the public restroom for shitting. It's, just, it's, it's not something I will do unless it's an absolute emergency, which... I don't know, maybe I'm just a lucky individual, but I don't have such emergencies all that often where I can't get mm -hmm. to my home to use a proper toilet for such matters. <laughs> I mean, you said, talk about man. this stuff, Steve. I mean, the, the Amelie Cafe in, in Paris, the one that was used in the movie, I mean, one of the toilets in that is, is just a hole in the ground. Like, they got that mm. going on. Do you, do you have those in Italy? I've never been to Italy. Mainland Europe, uh, though, is absolutely, it's cowboy country for, 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 for toilet facilities. Uh, but, yeah. you know. No, uh, no holes in the ground. Uh, they do favor like a, a rectangular or square toilet there. You know, it doesn't have the nice round American style bowl, which I, I mean, I'm, I'm indifferent on. I don't understand it, but sure, sure. Seems a little more difficult to clean angles and whatnot. Yeah. I, of, I mean, I don't know. Angles. I find that I, I don't understand how toilets are so goddamn difficult to clean anyway. Like all of them, they suck. I cleaned yeah. my toilet yesterday and it's just all you do is you move dirt around on it like and it's not even visible when you start that's the worst thing just the dust settles i got not bad that news jack that's not dirt <laughs> yes it is 
my my only other toilet observation that I had uh, on my European adventure was uh, had a layover in Amsterdam, and uh, I opted like by choice to use the uh, the smaller child urinal because every single person in Amsterdam is like fifteen feet tall. They're all like you know just little skinny blonde giants. They all look like you know, uh, former professional soccer players who fucked up their knees and, and just can't do it anymore. And they're all like 10 feet fucking tall. So you go up to the urinal, it's basically at your chin. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Dutch are, they're a weird bunch. Uh, very tall, very strange. I don't know if you described anything strange in that, that little description. You just said they were tall. Too big, too big, too big. They also love when they're traveling. They love a, a double backpack scenario. So they've got one backpack on their back where it belongs, and then they put another one in the front. It's really great. Oh yeah, the front front backpack is an incredible life hack if you yeah. happen to be into backpacking. Yeah, if you if you're Dutch. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's uh, it was odd. But, I wouldn't fly yeah. in America as a, as a man with a giant gut. I can't see that working out too well. <laughs> Yeah, it would, that's the thing is the Dutch can pull it off because they're they're fucking they're lanky, man. They're all built like those uh, you know wavy arm inflatables that you put in front of a car dealership, and uh, you know they they can handle it. But can't do it in America American. anyway because you go out backpacking anywhere in America and you're just gonna get run over by a Ford F one fifty. So mm hmm mm hmm. Or in my matter. case, I'll just uh, I'll die of an asthma attack because of uh, various uh, forest fires that have made it not possible for me to go outside. So. I think you're not that I wanted to go out anyway. I don't know. Is Wisconsin that bad? I know Michigan has been uh, catastrophically bad. Oh yeah, it's been shit. It's been real dog shit over here. I, it sucks. Like even even today, I was outside for like an hour. I was like, oh, too much. Get back in. Fine, it's my natural habitat. I shouldn't be outside anyways. Uh, but hey, this is a podcast about movies. A lot of people think it's about taking big European dumps, uh, and it is. To well, when I was hosting, we didn't even have this long preamble, so you know, you we just got right into the, the movies. <laughs> sure, that's that sexual tension I was talking about. We've we've been covering a whole bunch of intimate habits here. Mm-hmm. This is what the Patreons want. That's what they're. Someone should just give us twenty bucks for a month or whatever, twenty five bucks for a month, and just ask for an entire episode of this shit. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, pay $25 and I'll, I'll talk about every, uh, every country I've been to and what the toilet situation <laughs> is. <laughs> It'll be great. Um, you know, actually, we are uh, <laughs> we're talking about, uh, I, I mean, arguably the, uh, the, the two greatest directors of the last 40 years. <laughs> uh, we're, we're talking, it's, it's a classic battle of uh, East versus breast uh because i don't i don't know how we came around to this but we decided to do witches of eastwick and jim wynorski's witches of breastwick this is all you steve right like this was how, your how is it? This i actually don't think me. steve had anything to do with it yeah, thank you his this wife wanted like to is. do share that uh i just uh, was like fucking jim wynorski is that what happened i because i have yeah, no yeah, idea how Susan this came like, about let's uh let's do you should do a share episode and Myros is just like well what if we did witches of breastwick <laughs> why, why do we why would we not just do several share films it's not like there's only one that we just <laughs> yeah because most of my didn't want to i didn't want to watch like mask or something so i was like well this Moonstruck. would be fun Okay, but you wanted to watch Witches of Breastwick. That was high on your your rankings. Uh, well, yeah. it's it's just it 
it's on brand, Jay. It's on brand. It is he on brand. Like, sadly. He's like, I want to see some uh, some Jim Wynorski softcore instead of uh, the movie where uh, Nicolas Cage like fucks Cher with his wood hand. I'm so, just. Yeah. It's a little bit. We've we've grossly underrepresented uh, Jim Wynorski in in the annals of this podcast. We really have Wynorski. He's he's OV Cannon for sure. He's he's our boy, our absolute fucking boy. Uh, and <laughs> it's that's illuminated further in the uh, 2009 documentary, full length documentary made about the making of Witches of Brestwick, which of course we also watched. Uh, but I, I kind of want to start with Witches of Eastwick because because uh, it's, it's a movie. movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it a little easier to talk about. It's kind of interesting in George Miller's uh, filmography because he obviously he started off, uh, you know, the Mad Max series, Mad Max Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome. And to sort of break out of that, he he wanted to do something different. And this is this is like it's not just different. but This is a big, big fucking movie. I mean, this is Jack Nicholson. It's Cher. It's Susan Sarandon. It's Michelle Pfeiffer. It's it's big. Right. And. uh also, it almost made him quit filmmaking because uh, as he was making this movie, uh, Warner Brothers was like aggressively lobbying to take away all of his creative control uh, to the point where Jack Nicholson basically had to step in and help out with it being a mediator between George Miller and the studio because uh, they were going to take the whole project away from him which is crazy. So uh, yeah, we, we almost uh, lost George Miller as a filmmaker completely because of this movie. And, you know, I, I think part of the way that they, they tried to combat things is uh, when George Miller was talking about how he was, he was directing Jack Nicholson. He basically would have him do each scene and he would have him do like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 takes. And each time he would do a take, he would say, give me more, give me more, give me more. And with that in mind, when you're watching Jack Nicholson in this movie, it feels like you're getting take 10 where he's on the verge of <laughs> just complete meltdown at any given point. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, this, this is kind of an oddball one. And uh, also wildly entertaining <laughs> george miller's whole career is like really oddball when you think about it i mean even the mad max movies are not normal movies like the first no. one is kind of like okay it's a pretty down and dirty you know kind of like grindhouse revenge movie but then mad max 2 sticks in like a bdsm leather love story in the middle of it uh three is is fucking peter pan and then from this, he went on to, like, Talking Pig movie that's actually really good, which, who was going to put that one on their bingo card when he came over? Mm -hmm. I mean, his whole career is, is full of kind of odd choices. He seems like a guy who's really good at that. So, yeah, um, interesting introduction to the U.S. Well, uh, he'd made, he made a section for the Twilight movie prior to this, so, but he probably doesn't want to talk about that. This is probably... Twilight Zone movie? Twilight Zone movie, <laughs> sorry, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's a whole, like, Witches of Eastwick is an interesting one because he came over and he's kind of had made his reputation internationally thanks to the Mad Max series. And then he got caught, obviously, in this kind of spat between Warner Brothers producers and particularly, I think, is John Peterson, I think, was the producer who was, like, throwing his weight mm -hmm. around and Peters just doing crazy. John Peters, sorry, yeah. I was thinking of 
doing crazy shit on on studio and then apparently share was always difficult to tell whether is share being difficult or is everyone just being shitty to share because she was a woman and uh, she didn't you know she tried to hold her own and everyone ran against her it's hard. basically share was was put in the movie uh, miller did not cast her uh, and i think there was acrimony there because miller even though she's very good in the movie, and I, I don't know why you'd be so adamantly opposed to having Cher in the movie. I think she fits in every yeah. bit as well as, like, it's not like they're not looking for a type, you know, I mean, you've got Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer, why would Cher not fit in with those two women? Um, But yeah, there's this acrimony, and it just always, apparently it created a, a deeply unpleasant working environment for Miller in particular. Um, but the movie itself is, I'm not, I'm not like a hugely... Like, I'm not like, oh, I, I love this movie. I'm just a huge fan of it. But, like, it is, it, again, strikes me as kind of one of those movies that just, I, if they made it today, and to be fair, they did make a TV version, like, 2009, so they already tried it. Mm -hmm. But, like, if they made it today, it would be a 12-hour TV event slog full of just endless amounts of dead space, and it would probably be much more severe and serious, and it would tell you everything much more overtly in part just to fill all the goddamn runtime because like what are you going to do for 12 hours like most stories don't take that long um mm. but yeah it's it's kind of like one of those just like adult movies like it's a movie for grown-ups it's not really for kids it's got this strange wistful funny kind of almost cartoonish bent to it it's very over the top in places uh, it's kind of fun in other places it's um it kind of and it looks great. Vilma Sigmund shot the shit out of it. it looks beautiful. Uh, John, like John John Williams, Williams score, score right? Like all <laughs> yeah. the, like it's it's this quality, really nice movie. Like really good, solid movie about you know it's an adaptation of a book, but it's not like a time worn story. It's not like this was you know everyone's going to the the, the movies to watch the latest John Updike adaptation. <laughs> like that wasn't a thing that was bringing everyone in. You know it's it's just it's a movie that doesn't exist anymore. Like, mm -hmm. this kind of, this whole project of adaptation just doesn't happen anymore. Or if it does, it's in such a remorselessly content-driven that, yeah, it's, it's a TV show no one watches and that everyone yeah. hates, you know? <laughs> so, it, it's something there to it, I guess. It's kind of depressing watching it now. Like, 1987, it's like, God, that was a long time ago now, and, and everything's maybe kind of worse for American cinema. So, hooray, despite all the acrimony on set. <laughs> pretty much right yeah it's uh it, even even the story itself like the, the fact that it, especially in the third act it, it basically plays out like a fucking looney tunes cartoon which is great uh but it's like oh well what's what's the story here and it's like uh yeah so you got these three friends at a small rhode island town and they end up in a polycule with satan fucking awesome <laughs> yeah it, it's it's a strange one like it's obviously like a movie that is is very charged with gender issues but it's kind of difficult to get a bead on what exactly it's saying at certain points because it's like wait is this movie acknowledging like religion and i i don't know what it's doing with this sort of like bone marrow in the brain lunatic woman where it's like it's kind of demonizing this sort of witch trial thing but then it's like but wait she's right that guy's saying and you're like yeah, it's very much it's feminist adjacent rather <laughs> yeah. than feminist like there, definitely there's gender issues and a gender perspective to the film but yeah i mean i'm i'm not 
I couldn't exactly come away from this thing. It made any great point particularly no. to me. No, and I kind no. of, I kept it kind of expecting it to, because it doesn't seem like a, a dunderheaded movie by any stretch. I'm like, well, you can kind of tell this source material has something going on, and I'm not entirely sure what it is from watching this movie. Oh, the source material is, it, it's, it's similar, but it, it's a lot darker. Sure. Um, I, you know, like, I, there's, there's another, there's like a fourth woman in the, uh, the original John Updike story, and fucking jack nicholson satan uh he he like marries her at one point and then the uh the three witch women they like give her fucking cancer <laughs> she dies Good and Lord. then i think i think the end of that version because okay you want to talk about how this is only feminist adjacent because i think the ending of witches of eastwick the movie uh really fucking undercuts that to a degree uh but in the book I think what ends up happening is uh, Satan runs off with dead cancer ex-wife, like, brother or something, and he's just, like, fucking him. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a little <laughs> bit weirder in the book. I mean, it's tricky, it's tricky, because 1987 feminism is an unrecognizable entity to 2020's yeah. online feminism, for better or for worse. Um Great strides have been made uh, in certain elements and probably a lot of noise entered into the conversation too. But, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. late 80s feminism was certainly, I mean, a, a real earnest uh, kind of effort, but also, I mean, had had a lot of like kind of tearing down of women, like sex workers and so on still were absolutely reviled, generally speaking. Pornography was viewed as a prison you know, th things that still exist now, but are by, by no means considered at the heart of, of women's issues. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, I suppose in a sense, maybe viewing it this way, you know, it, it's maybe a little bit basic now, but I mean, which is Eastwood kind of acknowledges a, a kind of a, an innate female power and kind mm. of conception. I mean, actually, it's the women who kick the whole events in a sense. They actually conjure Nicholson's character. They actually set things in motion. I think this might be clearer in the book that you know, they have magic powers, that the powers are theirs rather than Nicholson mm -hmm. in this film playing the devil effectively. You know, it's, it's women who are divorced or separated, who've, who basically had a man in their life and then got rid of him through some way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of awakens an nascent power in them. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of like... That's an interesting idea, you know, women after men, you know, when society would generally look at them as all spinsters, except that they're played by Michelle Pfeiffer, Sharon, Susan Sarandon, but that's Hollywood. But, um, you know, the, the, there, there's a new lease in life. There's, and I think this was something that was being picked up in the 80s and 90s, this idea of, like, um, middle-aged women were starting to realize that they were actually just middle-aged, they weren't dead. You know, it's like, you're 32, there's still things you can do. Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. So, and yeah. in this era, too, I mean, I, I feel like the idea of 80s feminism was, uh, you know, I think of like working girl or something like that, where it's just like, oh, yeah, now you can wear shoulder pads and be the, the boss with the corner office. And, but, and it was always contextualized that way. But uh, I, I kind of like the Witches of Eastwick version of that better because uh, the, uh, these are like three distinctly different women and they're all like brilliant. And right. just doing their own fucking thing. And it's, you know, a, it's share, a no way about like, and, yeah, it's no yeah. way. It's a no way about commodifying their gifts. You know, it's yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Um, so that 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 is 
to their credit. I, I think the, the thing that sticks out for me that's hard is um, I, I, I wish this was uh, a little bit more of a pro-choice movie. <laughs> it's the idea, the ending that they went with. And I, I don't know, I've, I've watched a few interviews with George Miller to kind of get some context around this movie just because it is so odd. Uh, and, I, and I'm not sure what degree of this was, you know, in script or studio meddling or, or George Miller's own ideas. But uh, basically, they uh, they finally get rid of Satan. Uh, but because they've all been porking him for who knows how long, it turns out they're all pregnant with Satan's child. And, you know, uh, I've seen Rosemary's Baby. I know how this goes uh, generally throughout the the history of cinema if you are impregnated with a demon child it's not going to turn out well and they all choose to have the baby i personally would have had an abortion but what do i know well i don't know it's it's kind of interesting in that even though they get rid of satan they all seem to kind of like him (laughs) yeah right they don't get rid of him because they hate him they just get rid of him because he's kind of making things he's making life difficult in the town more than anything else Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just he's making things inconvenient and annoying. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> they it's, do enjoy his company. It's kind of the setup of the film is that Jack Nicholson is plays as the like strangely, irresistibly charismatic man who wanders in and kind of takes over everything. And the movie kind of has that same problem in that it's it's a film very much about these three women and their perspectives, but it's also about Jack Nicholson coming in and being irresistibly charismatic and. Uh, it, yeah, it's kind of a strange one because I mean, it's really he's first build. I think he's 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 the top guy in the movie playing the kind of foil for everyone else. Um, it's it's a sort of a strange uh kind of metal, you know, kind of I guess organization of things that that they they can't kind of come away from anything else. And this is a Jack Nicholson picture more than anything else. Um, and it kind of is. Cher would win an Oscar, I think, the same year this came out for Moonlighting. Um, you know, she was a big star too, and Michelle Pfeiffer was struck. Jack, get it together, not moonlight. Did I say moonlighting? The other one, yeah, moonlighting. Yeah, well, Sybil Shepherd. That's when you drive uh, Uber at night. That's that's that's, that's moonlighting. That's that Bruce Bruce Willis TV show that someone on Twitter never heard of, and they were like a media writer. Jack, it's really more of a Sybil Shepherd TV show. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would. I would agree with that. But in any case, you know, I think there's this kind of strange balancing act within it. You know, and again. Maybe why it doesn't seem to land entirely is because it can't help but kind of like lean into its market, which is very much that it's the Jack Nicholson show. And I think mm-hmm. the women do a good job around it, but it's also it all it just all comes back to Satan. He's he's the best character. It's hard to be yeah. better character than Satan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Nicholson's performance is like, yeah. oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, the same thing I'm saying. It's just like such a strange performance that it's it's captivating. But. That's kind of the problem with Jack Nicholson, especially in this era as a whole. And it's a good problem to have, I suppose. But, you know, people levy it at a lot of movies he's in at this stage of his career where it's like, just becomes the Jack Nicholson show, no matter what role he's supposed to have, or if he's a major character, a minor character, supposed to be the center of the film. He's just like, so fucking magnetic. (laughs) It's like, it just becomes Jack Nicholson's movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> and and again too, like his his performance here is just so big. Uh, it's it's hard to find any sort of counterbalance at all. And it, if anyone is capable, it should be someone like you know Cher or Susan Sarandon. Or I mean, this is like a, a lot of talented people. 
And going back to Moonstruck too, and another larger than life performance uh, from someone who is uh, known for not always being subtle and, and coming out, you know, big out the gate. Uh, Moonstruck, Nicolas Cage is absolutely fucking ridiculous in that movie. Uh, but Cher's performance is, you know, maybe maybe not on, on the over the top level of his, but it's it's strong enough and it's loud and it's bold enough to, to kind of offer that balance. And you don't really get it here as much because, I mean, Jesus, by, by the end of the third act, uh, Nicholson is getting, you know, dragged around by a car and uh, he bursts into a church and, and <laughs> absolutely insane monologue where he's screaming his fucking head off. Yeah. And uh, then he turns into a giant demon, <laughs> which I got to say looks really fucking cool. <laughs> I, I don't know what they used here. Like, obviously, if they made it today, it'd just be like, you know, CGI schlock. Uh, but it, it's some sort of like uh, weird green screeny. Uh, it, it's almost like a Harryhausen. Yeah, thing. no, it, I think I think really they're cool. doing it as as a basic claymation miniature. I think I don't know if mm -hmm. Rob Button was was involved in this, but I mean he's on the special effects crew for this. I know he was almost certainly involved in the famous scene with Veronica Cartwright puking up cherry pits, which they built like a whole mm. animatronic rig, which apparently was so disturbing for test audiences, they cut almost all of it out, which is a shame because there's like one shot left in it where you could see like this visibly deformed like shoulder blades. It's like a shot from the back of the puppet. It's like real mm. brief. And it's just sort of like, it just looks real fucked up. And you kind of wish, you know, I, I wish I could see that footage. I wish, I don't know if it's still around anywhere. But it, but it kind of shows, again, this film is, like, it's, it's not a normal film, or it's not, it's not a safe film. Miller brought in a lot of, like, really big special effects swings into a film that still really works in a, you know, it's really working on a character level more than anything else. So, like, it's not, it's not a spectacle film, but then it mm -hmm. incorporates these really big tableau special effects which is i think something that miller is he's pretty good at i mean the, his his mad max films yes are vehicular carnage um but they have this kind of kind of slow burn character element like he gets the the character elements down so that it functions really well i mean one of the the big things about fury road that people were amazed at is how well he managed to integrate very well drawn characters into a movie that never stops to drop exposition on any of this and that is pretty much just wall to wall vehicular carnage um so like he it it's a film i think that certainly shows his his skill with this and it's something mm -hmm. that i'm kind of thinking again like what's what are the films like this now like i'm trying to think of anything that has this whimsy and this darkness and the, i mean this budget uh, it's just it just kind of doesn't seem to exist anymore, you know, and, and kind of a film that's just kind of put out to adults to just watch and figure out what they make of it. And maybe, you know, and I say maybe it's not like a absolutely re like remarkable text, but you, you could certainly you could shoot. This would be a great like book club movie. This is something you could bring with a group of people, prayer some snacks, chat about it. We don't have snacks for our, our podcast, which is a shame. Um, Steve might want to look into that. I don't know if the Patreon yeah. could have a new tier, but um, snack you, tier, yeah, snack tier. Why not? But he, he, like, again, just to say, like this, it's kind of a messy, kind of meandering, kind of unusual movie. But I think that's it seems more admirable now to me to just have like 
I don't know how much this cost, but it wasn't cheap and it just happened. And I know the studio were being assholes about it, but it was still normal to just kind of make movies like this. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's kind of a shame that that's now not really like you'd make this movie for a million bucks or else you'd make it for the same amount of money, but you would have to make it 12 one hour episodes. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, there's like a nice happy medium for me with with something like this where. I, I'm not going to advocate for, for television ever uh, and, and the bloat that, that comes along with that. But this movie is, is kind of strange in its pacing. It, it feels like it's losing a lot of detail uh, from the source text, which, again, I have not read the update, unfortunately. But um, it's just there's points of it that just sing and they're so fucking excellent. Like and, and a lot of that has to do with the seduction. Uh, you, that Sarandon, it, like, musical scene is just fucking incredible. <laughs> like, this, it's just kinetic as hell. And you kind of, like, don't even get Pfeiffer's character, like, that, her part of that is just kind of, like, gone from the movie. Like, it feels like a definite cut. And, mm -hmm. um, there's, it just kind of, like, zips along at a certain point when you get past the initial arrival. It's just kind of like, we get to that tennis scene, and that's a very strange scene to begin with, but uh it really kind of takes the movie forward it's like okay this is your firm act break forget about that stuff you were enjoying now we're just time has passed how much time who knows but things have changed uh now they're all living together and tennis balls are floating around and whoopee woo and that's uh, the second act gets a little bit loopy for me because i'm like no oh, i was i was really liking this setup and it was really interesting what they were doing and I, I still think it continues to be interesting in the way that, yeah, it's not really a feminist text, but it is certainly really interested in what a modern relationship and the dissolution of the traditional is doing for feminine power and the possibilities that, that exist in that. But it feels like it does not have time to fully dig in on what it's doing. It's, it's, it's at a certain point. Yeah, it becomes Nicholson's show because the, the three women just, there's not enough screen time for them, their whole stories to exist in, in this film. Yeah, and as you say, like, their, their vendetta against Veronica Cartwright's character is, again, like, peculiar, because in one way, yes, yeah, she seems to be kind of condemning them for their lascivious, you know, free, sexually free, liberated lifestyle, like women pulling down other women, but at the same time, she's also correct kind yeah. of like what they are doing is actually against nature but because because he's the devil <laughs> so yeah I, I don't know it's 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 strange but it's it's often very funny and it's 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 one of those films to say i i i couldn't say that i'm like oh man i love this movie but like man i you could just watch it anytime it's really not it's no imposition at all it really it's got a lot of great qualities to it Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. And there, I think there is, again, something to be gleaned from her, you know, Veronica Cartwright's character's existence in a, a very traditional marriage that seems mm -hmm. to be successful and happy up, up to a certain point. And then her husband beats her to death with a fire poker. And it's like, whoa. So again, there's just these little details. There's so much going on in this movie. But again, it, it feels like it, too much for two hours. I I seldom want to watch a piece of media that's that's over two hours long. But I think for what this movie is attempting to do, it's awfully ambitious to try and get it done in two hours. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, 
and and I I think too. I mean, Jack, you touched on this, but just just to contextualize what this movie is and why we don't get these things anymore. Um, Witches of Eastwick, when it was released in 1987, like if you look at the domestic box office for 1987, it made about as much money as Lethal Weapon. It was one of the ten highest grossing films of the year. It made more money than Predator, than Crocodile Dundee, than RoboCop, than Dirty Dancing, than uh, The Living Daylights, the Bond movie that came out that year. Uh, It made more money than the third Nightmare on Elm Street movie. It made more money than Full Metal Jacket. Um, Which is crazy. Like, think about your dad going to see this movie. What the fuck would he make? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, lots of people's dads must have gone to see this movie. Yeah, they yeah, probably yeah. just went with their wives and like fucking brought a newspaper or something. <laughs> <laughs> I it's it's wild and it is. It's like it's this big budget, high grossing movie with an all star cast, and it is the weirdest fucking shit. It is a, a singular vision. There is nothing else like it, and you we we really don't get we don't get them like this anymore. You just you just don't. Uh, so shit, man. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a fucking joy. It, it, now, if we're talking about things that aren't always a joy, uh, let's uh, let's hit fast forward by about twenty years. I mean, if anything, tra- if anything charts the Rosh, that is, I maybe mean, this is a really great pairing because everything mm-hmm. kind of went the way Winorski went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought uh, you were talking let's... about because because Jack was talking about uh, how you know in in the era. Of which is Beastwick, a lot of people were uh, very judgmental of uh, sex work, and Jack is carrying that tradition forward by, you know, lambasting the the excellent work of Jim Wynorski and his his women who are empowered in in this film, you know, to freely express <laughs> yeah, their sexuality. I, I think that's not what what comes across in this film. Unfortunately, I I think I think a good fun porno could be fun, but it's witches of Breswick fun. Is anyone having fun? The answer apparently <laughs> is no. Well, I mean, it answers. Okay, so witches of Breswick, which you would think, uh, based on the career of Jim Wynorski and also based on the title, you would think that it is a uh, a, a soft core riff on. Witches of Eastwick, and you would actually be incorrect. There are technically witches here, uh, but that is, and it, and it is softcore porn, but it's not a parody of, of Witches of Eastwick at all. No. Uh, what it is, is it's uh, some witches and a guy in a house, and, you know, if you've watched a lot of Jim Wynorski films, you might say to yourself, I think I recognize that house, and the reason why you recognize that house is because he's used it uh, probably at least a half dozen times for a variety of softcore features. So, <laughs> right, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> worth worth mentioning because because I feel like the thing the sticks, and we'll, we'll get into more of it with the documentary that came along with this. But like, this is very much Jim Wynorski apparently either bet or was made to, or just it was judged it was the best business decision to make a film in three days or shoot a film in three days. And so Witches of Breswick was reportedly shot in three days. I think that's a lie, because there's one scene to the start that is not shot in the house. So I, I'm pretty sure that was a day four. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a film shot in three days in a house they rented, in a cabin they rented. And that's probably all you need to know about what the film is, because beyond that, it really is just like... The, I guess your understanding of like softcore porn as like like bad softcore porn, not the fun 
sleazy sexploitation films, which Jim Wynorski is actually quite well known for otherwise. But by 2005, worth noting this movie is from 2005, that this, <laughs> this still existed. You yeah, know, the internet was all... Know, Witches of Eastwood was ripe for fucking... <laughs> Yeah, everyone's clamoring for, for the big... years later. Yeah, you know. Yeah, usually he's a more timely guy. Like when Blair Witch came out and he made the Bear Wench project. Like that was, he was like right after it. Yeah. So uh, this is not so timely. No, yeah, not at all. It, all of his films around this time are really somewhat timely. You know, he's got that Bresford Wives in there. That's because the remake with Nicole Kidman was, was right around that time. Yeah, it, it all keys into some sort of movie that is relevant, except for this one. Yeah, yeah and, and so it just, I, I don't know, I guess I guess the thing that's worth harping on here is, like, I, I really enjoy some Jim Wynorski's films, right? Like, Chopping Mall, it's fantastic. Dinosaur Island, that's a great time. I really enjoy these movies. And yeah, like, Dinosaur Island is also, kind of, like, it's not softcore porn but it's pretty like slammed right up against it like it's like it's a bunch of busty women who get naked quite often but it's it's not like endless sex scenes but you know this is what i would associate winorski more with those earlier films that had had a distinctive style and had a kind of a loving relationship with their limitations they were knowingly cheap and cheerful and kind of silly but they still had room for ambition and flights of fancy, and for surprisingly good kind of, like, elements. Admittedly, some of those you'd watch, and then you find, oh, no, he just bought that footage from someone else. But, you know, mm -hmm. he, you know th these were things that are in there, whereas by the time we got to Riches of, of Breastwick, there's, there's nothing left. Like, it's just been, it's been pared down to just the bare kind of essentials of, of a softcore porn product to be sold to Cinemax or HBO or any other entity who was just looking for a 80 minute time slot to fill with boobs and it's kind of like in that element as we talked about how you know witches of eastwick has become a kind of like an unthinkable project now in its own strange way witches of breastwick is kind of the it kind of indicates a steady decline on the other end of cinema you know cinema that was already cheap as chips has somehow become even worse and the products mm -hmm. are even worse too yeah, and, and they, they touch on it in the documentary, but uh, with the advent of, of like the digital video era, uh, on, on the good side, making a film becomes more accessible than ever, and that trend just kind of continued. You got a fucking iPhone, you can make a movie. Uh, but, same thing is, it, it starts to erode that barrier, and then, because it ha there's more access than these producers... HBO, Cinemax, they want more and they want it faster and they want it cheaper and, and they just want to just grind down the Wynorski model mm -hmm. uh, to just its, its rawest elements uh, without actually thinking about making a good movie. And like you said before, Jim Wynorski can make fun exploitation films. He's a very, very talented director if he wants to be. Uh, also a great editor, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a wonderful scene in the documentary about the making of The Witches of Breastwick, which is called Papatopoulos. And it, they talk about how he basically swindled Paramount in the late 90s. Uh, Paramount decided they were going to sell 
little bits of stock footage. Uh, so I, I, I forget what movies they were from, but you know, like helicopter scenes and, and car chases. One and, of them and was like Van Damme's Maximum Risk. They had footage from <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, I would never even think to buy stuff from that, but hey. Yeah, and, and so he, he's, he's basically, he gets 12 minutes of footage that they shot for these action scenes. He pays 25 grand for it. And then he went on to make like a dozen movies that utilize these scenes. And Wynorski's talent is, you know, we watched Grizzly 2 last month, and it has some of the worst integration of stock footage and existing clips I have ever seen in my entire life. Like, it's absolute fucking whiplash watching that movie. Uh, Wynorski's talent is he was able to take this existing footage and not only use it like it was an original action scene, but then also shoot with his limited resources to make the whole thing seem seamless. Like you watch it and, and you think it's all part of Wynorski's shoot when it's not. He just has sort of crafted movies ar around these scenes. Uh, and, that's, and that's his brilliance. But then now you get to, to 2005 Wynorski and all of that ingenuity and, and his creativity and his talent is sort of stripped away because he no longer, he doesn't have the budget all he has to do is he has to turn a profit. And the way he turns a profit is he's going to make the world's most boring softcore uh, <laughs> in three days. Yeah, there's no and, incentive yeah. to do anything more. I mean, I think this is what, yeah, like what it's pointing towards is this concept of a model that is grinding out content. It removes incentive to even make a good movie. Like, there's no point because the people buying the movies don't even care about them. Um, and that's, I, I think, maybe a, a pretty good reflection of the larger situation we're in. We, the age of content. Everything's content. Martin Scorsese makes content. People on YouTube make content. Once you're in that mindset, who fucking cares what's there? Like, it's just, it's product. And I think, you know, <laughs> the, the, the issue with that is evident when you turn on your television now. Well, I think yep. it's evidence of, as much as anything, changing consumer tastes as well. I think the bottom has totally dropped out of the market for soft core, even, even by sure. this era. And I think similarly, really, the bottom has dropped out on B-movie creature features to a great extent as well. Uh, it, it just doesn't have the popularity it used to. And, and there you see... Maybe a B filmmaker who has found a lane and thrived and almost sort of like switch positions with, with Wynorski is, is David Dakota, who now probably is working with more money than he ever has because he's making this fucking like Hallmark garbage, which has a, a interesting like resurgence in interest in streaming culture for whatever reason, as opposed to the sort of sci-fi channel and Cinemax market that Wynorski was always working in. Uh, after his his Corman heyday, uh, then that stuff is is just kind of the dregs now. Like no one gives has any fucking interest or doesn't give it any money. It's just like the very very bottom barrel shit. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting um, because you look at it and it's sort of like it's all like Winorski always worked in like yeah it's it's like you know it's busty women who get naked a lot. That's like a defining characteristic of a huge amount of his films. But there is this very obvious quality difference between, say, Dinosaur Island and the, the Witches of Brestwick. 
And it's kind of interesting too because it, it, it ties in with like the women in the films. And the great thing about Papatopoulos, the, the documentary, which by the way, I think the title comes because that's one of, of Wynorski's very, very funny, clever pseudonyms he directs movies under. Is he Papatopoulos? So, you know, it's popping mm-hmm. tops, I guess. Uh, I, that's what I'm assuming. I don't know because he's not Greek. I think he's Hungarian. Uh, so yeah. I don't know where well, else he's coming from. You know, he he did say that if if you want to make a good movie, all you need is a chase and a chest. That's it. Yeah, so. I mean, and and that's that's <laughs> good advice. it. I mean, and that's fair. It's kind of like. But what's interesting is that, and and getting back, Adam, to your your joke point about you know feminism and sex work as an outlook. I think what's interesting is that you know the the women in these movies are generally they're not given much credit for anything. You know, they show up, they take their their tops off they parade around whatever they they deliver their stupid dialogue and their dumb movies and they go home you know and whatever and it's all crap and he, i think it's funny papatopoulos it's really interesting they talk to the actresses and i think what's interesting and and charming and i you know upsetting to a degree is these women do and they, they they're not stupid they know exactly what they're doing they know exactly what the market is and what the movies are and they do take them seriously because it's still work and it's still something mm-hmm. they commit to and they want to be good at and they want to you know open up avenues for themselves with it because there's always a possibility in any given role or any given project you know that you, you it could be more interesting than everyone thought it was this is something that happens all the time you know all you need is a spin and a, you know kind of a perspective or whatever or, you know look strikes you know and, the, you know, the, they're, it's not just junk to them, it's something they're working on, but it's it's become increasingly, like, by the time you get to Witches of Breswick, I mean, I think it's, uh, one of the actresses said, like, it's not a real movie, which we joked about earlier, like, it isn't, it's nothing, it's just, there's nothing for them to do other than the things we denigrate women for doing in the first place, and it's kind of shitty in, in a way that, like, Dinosaur Island, yes, has very similar elements but it, it it allows a lot more leeway for the for the women to act to have fun with it to at least you know inject their own sensibilities and stuff into it and it is kind of sad to see that go by the wayside and i think you're right softcore porn the market fell out because obviously the rise of the internet meant no one had to put up with softcore anymore like softcore right. is this weird agreed upon fcc friendly sex product that's insane. Like, to describe the limitations of softcore to anyone, it just sounds like having a stroke. It's insane, right? <laughs> so, I mean, like, I feel like for, you know, like, if you want to look at porn, you're probably just going to look at hardcore porn and the internet opened that up for everyone and it made, you know, like it or love it, it makes a lot more sense if, if this is a product. But there's this other thing, which is this exploitation film, which is a much more kind of interesting, funny kind of subversive potentially product and i don't know why the market would ever necessarily fall out for that other than that i think maybe free ready access to hardcore just neutered people's imaginations and mm-hmm. they, they didn't realize you know it's kind of the, the whole thing you know like uh what was it i think barov it was it wasn't barov who said it but something applied to his films i think about how you know erotica is a feather and pornography is using the whole chicken uh, you know, like, the, I guess as a concept is that everyone, for the rise of the internet, everyone get the whole chicken all the time, and they forgot that feathers were useful for anything or could elicit anything. Um, but it's kind of, it's a shame that, you know, that I think you're right, that mar- those markets were seen to dry up, but I think maybe they, they didn't have to. I think there was a mismanagement. There was a crude kind of a, a logic. You know, they were killed partially. I think there is... 
uh, it's something in the distribution model as well. Like how how does one really sell something along the lines of erotic adventure movie or something like that? You know, like or an exploitation that film that that delves into sex. Like there's no. I, I hate to say that there's no real market for it, but I mean, it's not that there's no market for it. I think that in the right scenario, it, it could sell. I mean, we are all a market for it, certainly. Uh, but I, who's distributing it? You know, the, the media landscape has shifted in such a way that sure. the cable companies have really homogenized in the last couple decades, and streaming services are, are all owned by vast corporate entities that are just so risk averse that you're just this where are you going to find this stuff where do you release it who funds it it's just almost extinct because it's not that it's censored it's just that film is expensive regardless of if you're doing it in an iphone you still have to do a lot of stuff and it takes a lot of time and effort and there's no one to pay for it anymore Yeah, streaming streaming companies are so risk averse; they are averse to making profit at this point. Like they, <laughs> it's absolutely insane. And yeah, I mean, what could be more perverse compared to like sex films and companies that have Im- fully embraced streaming, even though they can't apparently make money from it? Well, it's uh, it's really strange that I feel like we we certainly didn't grow up in the heyday of like pornography and exploitation as artistic pursuit. Uh, but we did kind of grow up in the heyday of this stuff, this soft core stuff. Like, I think that in the 90s, this was sort of where that narrative pornography went. It migrated away from what you would find in the back of a video store, and it went to Cinemax, and they all had this, you know, a, a kind of a bizarre, unnecessary amount of uh, complex plotting in these fucking films where it was always some murder mystery or a sci-fi extravaganza or it was all just to get to this simulated sex, but it, it was there. And then you, you're just a few short years later and a guy who knows what he's doing in Jim Wynorski and ask me what the fucking plot of this movie is. There's about f- 10 lines of dialogue and it's just a big <laughs> pile of absolute nothing. <laughs> It is, it's really funny, it's like the joke, um, with Jim McBride died, was that, was that his name, the guy who, you know, I think I might be mixing up, the guy who wrote Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell, um, well, he died recently, and there was the joke going around, which is completely fair, is that uh, basically he introduced a whole generation of young men to musical theatre without realising it, like he snuck mm-hmm. musical theatre into rock music. Oh, you're talking about Jim, Jim Steinman. Steinman. Jim, Steinman. Jim yeah. that's it. That's the one. I could. I knew Jim something, and I'm Jim I was, something. I was yeah, close enough. So, but anyway, I think it, you know, very true. Like Bat Out of Hell is it's musical theater. It's uh, that's what it is. And there's a whole bunch of men who are like, I would never watch musical theater, but they'll listen to Bat Out of Hell and they'll cry. Um, mm. I think like the '90s softcore era was almost like the same thing for camp. I think it's not. It's not a surprise that I think a lot of gay directors ended up working and even doing straight softcore. Um, because mm-hmm. it just it the the sensibilities meshed. It was like we don't have enough money to make a real sci-fi movie, so we are going to make a very kind of tongue-in-cheek approximation of the things we think about in relation to a cheap sci-fi movie. And you know, it, it kind of went around like that, and and it certainly created, I think, some interesting products. Um, by and large, like so, some memorable, curious, strange, lovable, goofy movies. Um. But yeah, it it would just it wasn't sustainable anymore, and I think part of that did come from, like you say, an industry that basically ate itself, that that 
cut off anything that was deemed to not be profitable enough even mm. though it might still be profitable or even if it might foster other elements to be profitable as everything you know the 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 race for efficiency and just basically everything got like sheared away and now we're in a situation where i mean where warner brothers is like eating itself despite sitting on a hundred years of like the greatest films in history like it's insane they're like we can't do any no one wants anything and it's like no like tcm they slash the budget for tcm slash the staffing and tcm is like profitable it actually makes money <laughs> but it doesn't matter anymore like the whole thing is upside down and stupid and, so, you know, so it's interesting to view, because uh, I hadn't really thought of it before, it's interesting to view Wynorski through that lens. But the film itself, you know, getting back to the actual film itself, couldn't recommend it, because it's very much like the end product of a movie that... I think Wynorski tried to make it interesting to himself by taking it as a challenge of, can I make a movie, can I shoot a movie in three days? Which is only an interesting challenge if the movie looks like it couldn't have been made in three days <laughs> which unfortunately when you, if, if you watch the witches of breswick and someone says can you believe they shot that in three days the answer anyone is going to give you is yes i can believe Absolutely. that yeah. <laughs> yeah that doesn't surprise me at all and then i add on to that of course the fact that like the most dialogue heavy scene in the entire movie which is the lead character talking to his therapist is shot in like a fucking rented boardroom somewhere that isn't in the house, which is clearly a day four. So Jim Wynorski didn't even shoot a movie in three days. He shot a movie in at least four. Usually um, when I go to therapy, I like to sit 30 feet away from my therapist <laughs> on the other side of the world's largest table. Yeah, you would think there'd be a cheaper place to shoot a therapy. Like, a therapy scene literally just needs a room with two chairs. I don't, And the best they could come up with was, like, a massive boardroom table. room with 200 chairs. <laughs> it's weird. But then they needed the table for the, the, the other woman to come in and do her naked dance on. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I, it I wonder if uh, Wynorski had, a, he had, like, a meeting at Cinemax or something, so he just brought a camera with him and... Ooh, that yeah, could be. And he's just like, can I use one of your conference rooms really quick? I, I also <laughs> wonder if, yeah, the conference room, if they knew there was going to be a woman in high heels on that thing, because I feel like that's probably the most, you know, subversive part of the whole movie. Like, I don't think they would have enjoyed that at all. No, no. It's a surprise uh, sexy. I didn't see it covered because the therapist is, is too old to be involved even in simulated sex, you would think. So. I was like, well, this is just going to move on. No, no. Yeah. Too old to put a gym sock out his dick. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think of why I would recommend this to anyone at all. And uh, the answer is I wouldn't unless uh, you are very curious about what Stormy Daniels was doing right before she fucked the future president of the United States. And the answer is, which is a breastwick. Yeah, I think that's her her first non pornographic film, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. non hardcore. To be more I, specific. I don't know if it was if it was this year two thousand five or maybe it was two thousand six is when she had uh, her her sexual encounter with uh, Mr. Donald J. Trump. But uh, yeah, so yeah, that's that's good. Jim Wynorski really uh, helping Stormy Daniels break out of of hardcore pornography and into the mainstream so god god bless well, it's interesting yeah, it, in the doc you still get a, a real view of that stigmatization as well because you know i think julie k smith is is kind of the primary source in the doc uh as one of the three witches of breswick uh who is like a longtime collaborator of, of wynorski and uh 
she's just <laughs> fucking hates Stormy Daniels. Just I really it seems like only on the basis that she's a hardcore actress and it's, yeah. it's just get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's mm. definitely an acrimony there. I think I think Julie Strain might also bring it up, maybe less uh, kind of vehemently. She's not in the movie. She's in the documentary. Obviously, as another Wynorski collaborator. But this yeah. concept that, you know, hardcore actresses are brought in because they're cheaper um and also have a fan base built in somewhat as well which you know fair enough if it's good enough for david cronenberg it's good enough for jim wanorski to do it (laughs) but there is this you know an obvious acrimony between these two classes subsets of women who are trading on sexuality which is curious and i mean that this ran up to 2005 at least you told you steve you talk about like man i wish witches of east eastwick had you know been more like pro-choice and it's like you still can't make pro-choice movies in the u.s without some people throwing an odd glance at it like there there's mm-hmm. still like art house indie movies it's still everything has to be feel good and stuff it's it's like we're so woefully ill-equipped apparently as a society to acknowledge basic parts of human life uh so yeah it's kind of it's kind of interesting to see that that breakdown it kind of kind of a shame you know you kind of like think look no one takes any of this shit seriously maybe there's like a sense of camaraderie but i think the whole industry was falling apart at that point so yeah everyone had to look at their own their own best interests and it you know pitted people against each other even though honestly there was someone else who was actually the problem yeah uh i think Rather than recommending this, I would say that Julie Strain's an interesting touch point because her uh, collaborations with Wynorski on those Sorceress films are really kind of what this would have been in better days. So yes, that's to maybe yeah, just yeah. to check those out. Uh, or Haunting a Morella, which we've, we've done on a previous episode. I think that's a really fun Wynorski movie, and fair. that was... Uh, maybe maybe not like the high point of his career but it's it's a good indicator of you know when when you take Wynorski at his best something like a chopping mall or a dinosaur island uh, and then you've got him at his worst which is a breastwick what's what's the middle point <laughs> and it's haunting and morella you still you still have a bunch of women who are just taking baths with each other but uh there's a little more meat on the bone yeah another I- I was just going to say, another another great thing, just want to drop in about Poptopolis documentary, is they do interview Jim Wynorski's mother, which is extremely funny in <laughs> and of great. itself, but especially funny when his mom literally says at one point, nudity, you don't even do that in your own home, which probably <laughs> explains a lot about Wynorski. Oh, oh yeah, that's... What a, that's yeah, I would, I would highly recommend the documentary. It's not like it's a fucking... Wiseman film or something here. We're not gonna have Sean start a series about it, but uh I it is really if you're interested in this sort of uh filmmaking, then yeah, I would I would certainly recommend it because it's not I feel like most of the documentaries that exist about yeah, this sort of stuff are, are like some sort of greatest hits celebration where they're like, Wow, look at this. Whoa, remember this? It was so cool when this was happening. And this is just kind of a sad death of something but it shows <laughs> yeah. a lot of interesting perspectives on on this industry mm-hmm. that is at the time of making kind of on its last legs and you've got people like antonia dorian who still seems to have a lot of joy for it and it's just having fun being on set and then you've got julie strain and julie k smith who are fucking done with it <laughs> and yeah. just what the fuck out uh uh, strain was actually done with it by the time they 
release pop top well she's uh, both of them are cited as having retired but if you look julie k smith is still at about like six wine or ski movies after papa topless uh yeah, drops. Yeah. but yeah they're both just like completely fed up with it and it it's just such an interesting mix of perspectives on what this industry was at this snapshot in time between the mid to late aughts there mm-hmm yeah, it, it, it is. It's it's an interesting perspective for a documentary because, again, going back to the contentification of, of all films, I think documentaries have been hit particularly hard where uh, everything is just, it, it's, it's not about the filmmaking. It's like a semi-interesting story or a celebration of something. And this is really capturing uh, a very specific niche moment in time uh, and, and just kind of like watching it unfold and then having the people involved kind of uh, give some perspective and it's, it, yeah, it's, it's a really solid doc. Mm-hmm. Um, now again, it's, it's not the, the fanciest made movie. If you're a guy making a, a making of documentary about a Jim Wynorski softcore, I, I don't think like budget is a big concern. Uh, it's, you probably have like 20 bucks and a bologna sandwich to make the fucking movie. Uh, there, there's several points in the movie where, they're like shooting Jim Wynorski shooting scenes and you actually see the guy holding the camera. Like he, he accidentally like covers the lens with his fingers. Uh, <laughs> they just leave that in. So, uh, but I, if anything at all, it's worth tracking this down. J- just like Jack said, so you can see the interview with Wynorski's mother, because there is like this incredible gray gardens moment <laughs> where she answers the phone <laughs> and then spends like a solid 30 seconds just trying to hang the phone up. <laughs> it's fucking beautiful. It's so good. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a documentary that um could have been much lazier, but I think the to full credit to to the director, they they realized and I don't know if they knew it before they picked it up. I think maybe it was like how do you it started as like how do you shoot a film in 3 days? follow Jim Wynorski, let's watch him do it. I think, I feel like maybe that was a starting point, but they actually realized in shooting it, they were, they were kind of, um, they were watching a death procession, um, mm-hmm. and they, and they made the space for it, they adapted to it, and I think that's, it's in the movie, I, you know, I think that's, it's a, a fine piece of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, before we wrap up the episode real quick, uh, you know, we all have our favorite Jim Wynorski movies, uh, but I I don't care about the movies. I want to know what your favorite Jim Wynorski movie title is. So, uh, Myros, do you have a fave? Well, God in heaven, I got to pull them up here. Oh, I know. I saw one. <laughs> I saw one of these recent things that's probably completely unwatchable. That has quite the fucking title. Uh, it's really on the the Sharknado wave there, which is probably the last great wave of of the, the creature feature, unfortunately. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. he has a movie from 2015 called Sharkinsaw Women's Prison Massacre. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I, I don't know. For me, I, I go back and forth uh, between Cleavage Field Pretty great. and House on Hooter Hill. <laughs> I, I, I really like Hooter. That, Hooter Hill. It's just fun to say, right? I, I don't know. Jack, how about you? Do you have a favorite title for a Wynorski film? I mean, to be honest with you, like, it's the boring one, but, like, honestly, Chopping Mall is a fantastic title for a movie, but it's also, mm-hmm. like, a real movie, you know, that you would show up to. I've never seen it, but, I mean, he just last year he did release Attack of the 50-Foot Cam Girl, 
which is just <laughs> uh, feels like just a snapshot of the world right now. Just uh, one of those things. But, you know, he uh, sexapede. So many of these are just remarkable. Piranaconda. Busty Coeds versus Lusty Cheerleaders is mm. there's so much here, frankly. And gosh, I wish I wish he maybe didn't have to make these movies, but the IMDb page is funny. Oh, the Hills of Thighs. That oh, doesn't no, make any sense <laughs> at all. Like that doesn't parse <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. So good for him. Well, I yeah. what's interesting is he made a movie that came out this year that is uh titled both Murderbot and Killbots, which which I found interesting uh, because Chopping Mall is also called Killbots. So I'm like, yes. just like mm-hmm. a Chopping Mall remake? No, no, it seems to have n- nothing to do, do with it. It's just another it's like, like Terminatrix sort of movie. That's good. That's good. Uh, all right. Well, I guess we'll wrap things up right now. So, uh, Myros, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I've got a very special put over. I'm putting over... Uh, for those of you in the market for any any new electronics, uh, I'm putting over the good folks at uh, LG because uh, whatever you do, I, I don't don't buy anything from Samsung. Uh, that, that, that's my personal recommendation. So if there are there are two players for your media consumption needs, if you're looking for a quality television panel, uh, generally you would be choosing between Samsung and LG. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you have some qualms about OLED, but I gotta say, just buy LG, because fuck Samsung. Uh, this is about week four, where I, I have trouble putting over things, because I have trouble fucking watching things, because my <laughs> my my <laughs> very high-end panel from Samsung is completely shit, and uh, and has been broken, and I'm, I've lost any confidence that it's going to get fixed. So, uh, yeah, I, I would suggest shop LG. Wonderful. Thank you, Myros. Jack, what are you putting over this week? Uh, yeah, as you know, I've mostly been in the Final Fantasy mines for the last few weeks, so I've not watched a lot of other movies, but I did watch a movie on Hulu, uh, I believe a Lifetime movie, called Girl mm. in the Basement, and I'm going to put it over because I genuinely, I, like some of the other Lifetime movies it's similar ilk, I don't know what to make of it. It stars Judd Nelson as uh, an angry mean father and it's basically like a Hans Fritzl story it's it's based on true events but it's about uh, basically a man who uh, locks his 17 year old rebellious daughter in a bomb shelter he just happens to have in his basement that no one else knows about and then proceeds to rape her multiple times and imprison her and she raises a whole family down there uh, secretly while he maintains life up above board and it's all very dark and twisted and nasty and sordid, but also since it's a Lifetime movie, it doesn't really give any kind of background or indicators of anything. Like, there's no indication that this father has another daughter um, who seems fine. It doesn't look like he has any track record of sexual abuse or anything or any particular ill will towards this girl previously that he just locks in a basement. It's just like this complete, like a a switch is flipped, which in a sense makes it far more horrifying than some of the most like controversial horror movies I've ever seen. It's it's an absolutely monstrous prospect. Uh, So yeah, Girl in the Basement, it's shit. But is it shit in an interesting way? I don't know. And it perplexes me in how it is both absolutely acknowledges horrific things and then also can't really talk about them. It's it's utterly schizophrenic. So if you're on Hulu and you've taken an edible or whatever, throw that one on and see if you can make heads or tails of it. 
Sounds like a Hallmark movie version of Barbarian. What? <laughs> it, it just, it's wild. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. It's like, it goes further into like sordidness than you'd expect. But then still, there's no psychological profile or anything of anyone. It is, it's just, it's wild. It's just, it, it, like all the Lifetime movies, it's basically, it's aimed at women and its concept is every man around you is a ticking time bomb of treachery. And then mm. women lap it up. They're like, this is great. I... <laughs> Don't understand it. It's wild. Love it. Uh, well, I, uh, I I watched what I think might be the best shot on VHS film I have ever seen in my entire life. Genuinely. Uh, I watched a little movie called Blonde Death yesterday. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this one, but it's basically your, your typical, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, Badlands, natural born killers uh type of movie uh with a very very deep angry core so if you've ever asked yourself oh, what if you know a annie milligan made badlands instead of terrence malick what would that look like and blonde death is the answer it is like hilariously overwritten and but also super witty and smart it's actually shot composed well um edited well like it's it's shockingly competent considering it's from uh 1984 and it also does one of my favorite things that i don't think you get enough in in films uh last time i saw this was in sean baker's the the florida project but uh there is a scene where they uh they shoot a, a pretty lengthy scene inside of disneyland <laughs> uh which you know gen generally frowned upon by uh the mouse corporation but uh yeah blonde death if you can track it down i, I don't know if there's any release of this like formal release there there may have been at some point but if there is it's it's probably long out of print so hopefully someone will bring this one back uh but you can you know if you, if you check the various torrent sites or probably youtube i'm sure it's on there um it's it, the version that i have is it, it's like a dupe of a dupe it's it's like a really you know goofy tracking issues vhs rip uh but it's it's still great so yeah blonde death highly highly recommended uh pure ov goodness in the shot on video category it's uh it's it's fucking great so uh track that one down other than that if you enjoyed this podcast, there is a, there's a link, a link in the description, and that link will take you to our Patreon. And at that Patreon page, you can give us money. And I'm sure you're asking yourself, why the fuck should I give you money? And the answer is podcasting is expensive. It's, it's unfortunate. Hosting and, and, you know, shit we need. When you, sometimes you got to replace a microphone, all kinds of shit. It's fucking expensive. We don't, we're not people with means here. Uh, we, we don't, you know, we, we don't, can't just buy microphones all willy-nilly. We need your help, dear listener. But we're not going to just beg you for money and not give you anything. Far from it. You donate at any level to our Patreon, I will send you a movie from my personal collection. Who knows what you'll get? You could get a, a DVD, a Blu-ray, a uh, VHS tape. Uh, who knows? Possible to say. Uh, but you'll get something in the mail. Now, if you donate at a higher level... Then you get to, uh, you know, I think it's the $5 level, you get to vote on future episodes, and you also get to have your name read out on the air. 
And Myros, who are our five and above Patreon donors right now? Uh, we have CWW, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula, and our newest patron, we mentioned him last week, but uh, David, who I'm going to guess you have mailed something to. And if you haven't, yeah, you better get on that. Yeah, David, you, you got you got something coming. Uh, so, yeah, check your mailbox, bud. It's on its way. Uh, yeah, and then, of course, if you want to give us $25, that would kick ass. That's the highest tier of our Patreon. And if you give us $25, you actually get to dictate an entire episode, whatever you want. Um, we, uh, we just did one of those, and we have another one coming up very soon. I think next so, episode. Yeah, it, next episode. Yeah, next episode is another another patron special. So, yeah, give us twenty five bucks, and we'll watch whatever the fuck you want. You want you want us to watch Witches of Breswick too? You want to watch the Hooter Hill? Do you want us to hunt down every single Wynorski softcore that was shot in that same fucking cabin from Witches of Breswick? <laughs> Who knows that 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 could be an option it, for the low price, the twenty five dollars, and of course. No matter what, whether you donate at the lowest level or the highest level, you get access to our Patreon feed, which includes a bunch of, you know, exclusive written and podcast content. And we try to do patron special episodes that you can only get on our Patreon uh, as often as we can. And we're actually going to we're recording one right after this episode. So get another one coming your way. It's a great time to give Optimism Vaccine money. Now, on top of that, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at optimismvaccine, and uh, yeah, we'd love to love to hear from you. Other than that, I think I think that's everything. So uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with a Patreon episode. Mm-hmm.